HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Kane5.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Another episode of Greenhorn Radio today with Nathan McClintock, who I was at Berkeley with almost eight years ago, and now he's a teacher <laughs> of many things and a PhD man, and is writing on topics of interest to many of us who are involved in urban and peri-urban agriculture. Welcome to the show, Nathan. Thanks, Severin. It's great to hear your voice again. <laughs> it's great to hear your voice again. Um. Could you mind introducing yourself briefly about what you're what you're focused on these days? Sure. Um, so I'm Nathan McClintock. I'm an assistant professor at Portland State University in Portland, Oregon. Uh, I'm in the Toulon School of Urban Studies and Planning, and uh, I received my Ph.D. in geography from UC Berkeley uh, in 2011, so I've been here about two years now. Um, my research is primarily on urban agriculture and food systems. Um, my dissertation work was conducted in Oakland. Um, I was looking at uh, urban agriculture, the, both the, the movement sort of from historical terms and, and what went into the rise of urban agriculture, um, the, the very vibrant urban agriculture movement in, uh, in Oakland. And I know you've had several people uh, from the Oakland uh, urban ag movement on your show already. Um, so kind of a historical perspective on that, but then also really engaging with kind of participatory um, research methods, uh, integrating my research into the needs of a few different food systems food uh, and food justice organizations in Oakland. So that would have been the HOPE Collaborative um, and also the Oakland Food Policy Council. So I really uh, drew a lot of the questions for my research based on their needs. So one of the needs was, you know, how much vacant land is there in Oakland? Where is it located? How much food could we potentially grow from it? 
Um, and then a second question that came up from that work was to what extent is that uh, you know is what to what extent is that uh, land contaminated with uh, with lead? Um, and then a third question was to what extent do existing zoning uh, and land use regulations um, actually prohibit urban agriculture? So that was sort of the focus of my work at Berkeley. And then now at Portland, I've, I've um, you know been shifting my focus to be focused uh, more locally on what's going on in Portland. But what I'm pretty interested in now is um, really looking at how urban agriculture, uh, particularly in a place like Oakland, that is very renowned for its sustainability successes, um, how a lot of these successes are really kind of uh, focused solely on uh, kind of environmental f sustainability and questions of social sustainability are often left out of the equation. So my real concern now is how do we make urban agriculture something that's actually resonating with and benefiting um, all of the population, not just sort of a, a kind of affluent, uh, eco-minded, predominantly white population. Um, and so I, I've been actually mapping residential urban agriculture in Oakland, and you see a, you know massive concentrations in um, a particular um, part of the city, which is really the kind of part of the city that that's um, uh, celebrated and made fun of on the TV show Portlandia, so the sort of sustainable Portland. But if you go out to eastern Portland, uh, east Portland, it's much more um, low income out there, and you really don't see um, the urban agriculture um, there that you so, see in the so, part of the city. So this is, you're, you're pointing to this irony that well-meaning white kids travel to blighted neighborhoods, clean up glass with their fingers, and they initiate a successional economic process that results in the people who are surrounding that plot of now improved land uh, face gentrification and displacement, much to the chagrin of aforementioned well-intentioned right. white kids. Yeah, so what I, what I don't want to do is establish causality because I think, you know, gentrification is a much more complicated process than that. And so there's, especially in Oakland, there's been a big tension about that, um, you know, saying that urban agriculture causes gentrification, and, and, I, and it doesn't. I don't say that at all. Um, it's one of a suite of, I, I would say urban agriculture is a practice um, that is embraced by a population that, um you know, by a new arriving population in, you know, gentrifying neighborhoods. And so, you know, it's a it's a practice that many gentrifiers engage in. It is not what causes gentrification. Um, and so even though there is data showing that, you know, gardens lead to to increases in property value, et cetera, the, the, the actual processes leading to gentrification are much more um, large than, than just, you know, the, the whatever, the 20 or 50 people coming in and practicing urban agriculture. It's about, you know, real estate markets. It's about all of that. Absolutely that urban agriculture and, you know, a vibrant food movement in a neighborhood contributes to that um, increasing desirability in a property, you know, and a neighborhood as being an amenity. Um, so I would say it contributes to it, but to, to I, I definitely don't want to make the claim that it causes it at all. Um, well, I mean, I'm, I think that the, making the point of including a consideration of the social outcomes of one's work is a really positive perspective to bring into um, the physical direct action of establishing a garden or a farm. Mm -hmm. And a prerequisite to long-term success is thinking in, in the context of, you know, all the broad number of uh, impacts that that initiation will will ignite. 
Yeah, so I, I think I'm, I mean, I wasn't trying to box you into a causality. I'm more trying to uh, open up the conversation. I think deserves much more opening, and I'm really glad you're opening it. Um, and yeah. then, and then, of course, the other, the like, the question that immediately springs to my mind is, how do you, how do you act um, as a as a gardener, as an urban farmer? What are the ways? What are the models that you can point to as a researcher of uh, appropriate tactics? Well, I think the first thing to do is to, uh, and you know, I, I teach a couple of classes um, that are that we, and you know we that we tackle this. I have a very a small like capstone based class of fifteen students. Uh, it's just called Urban Agriculture and, and Food Systems, and. Um, uh, you know, so we talk about this there, and then I also teach a participatory research methods for community development class. And um, in both of those classes, I we start out just kind of with think, with some sort of basic understanding of uh, of privilege and what we call positionality. So you know, where 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 are we coming from? What is our where, where what is our position of power? What power do we actually hold uh, that other people may or may not hold? So really, kind of trying to map that power and, and our position. Um, so I think that's a, like a key first step is really sort of recognizing where we, um, you know, how we actually wield our power knowingly or unknowingly. Um, often in the food movement, you know, there's 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 sort of a colonialist mentality. Um, well-meaning, but I think naive and also ultimately kind of oppressive, which is that we just need, you know, if they just knew what to eat or if we just take this garden into this neighborhood, then they'll eat healthy. And and it's very much sort of an imposing kind of mentality that sort of uh, recreates this notion that we know better than them. And um, I think that's a really dangerous line to tread. And so that's something I think that's a really important first key is to, to to, to look reflexively at ourselves and how we speak about things and the language that we use to make sure that we're not actually propagating and perpetuating um, old, long-standing kind of racist and, and classist forms of oppression through our through our work. Um, so that's we actually you know last year we had a workshop series. It was about eight-week workshop series that uh, some students and I put on for food systems activists here in Portland um, to really kind of do this anti-oppression type training. Um, to really kind of think about, well, you know, where where in our language are we are we actually sort of perpetuating this idea? So, I think a lot of the work has to be personal work um, and really kind of identifying and understanding privilege. Um, and organizations like People's Grocery um, in uh, Oakland have done a really good job um, offering. Uh, kind of anti-oppression trainings and, and having their volunteers go through that. So I think, and, and I'm sure uh, throughout the country there are other good examples of that. You know, there's the, the Growing Food and Justice um, uh, Conference every year up in uh, growing, that Growing Power puts on. So that's a good example of a place to learn some of those skills. Um, so I think that sort of inner personal work is really important. And then I think the second piece, like once you're actually wanting to get on the ground, a really important piece is identifying existing organizations um, that perhaps are not celebrated, um, that haven't received the same type of press, uh, and having them, you know, really sort of seeing what they're doing and then, you know, kind of going to 
offering oneself as an ally rather than someone with a solution who's who's going to just go in and say, "Here's what we're going to do," um, and really, you know, trying to partner. Sometimes they may or may not be interested in food or, or urban agriculture. So, what are they working on? You know, maybe food is a something that they're interested in working on, but they haven't developed yet. So, like, what language are they using to connect with the community? So, I think that's a, a key piece. Um, someone who you might want to have on your show at some point. Um, Who's who's done some really interesting work on this is uh, Kristen Reynolds, who's a postdoc at the New School, um, and she and Nevin Cohen are writing a book uh, called Beyond the Kale, and it's about New York City, and uh, it's really kind of about the racialization of of or the urban agriculture movement in New York. How you know all like the New York New York Magazine and New York Times they they show these pictures of like here's the new the new urban farmer, and you know it's usually a white person in their 20s. Um, but what that's doing is obscuring, you know, decades-old tradition of uh, people of color activists working and, and growing food in, in East, you know, East New York and in Brooklyn and, uh, you know, Bed-Stuy, places like that, um, who, you know, struggle to get a grant for $200, whereas these sort of young, young new farmers are, you know, landing these three hundred, five hundred thousand dollars grants to, you know, to, to build a rooftop farm, et cetera. So, it's a really interesting story, and I think you know it's really important that that there the that the the original the the story of the original sort of urban farmers be told, uh, so that you know they they actually kind of reap the benefits of this sort of new wave of of urban agriculture interest. Well, as a um, as a key promoter of young white people in agriculture, I <laughs> um, I feel like yeah, I'm here I'm here to push some buttons today. <laughs> no, no, it's good. I um. You know, I think that part of it, part of this reason for the success of that um, image in the press has to do with it being um, a weird juxtaposition of privilege and at the bottom, privilege inserting itself at the bottom of the economy. And Mm -hmm. this kind of, like, our our, um, economy, our cultural norms are that people who go to college don't dig in the ground, and so mm-hmm. um, I I um, I feel like the the like next cool move we could make is to say, you know, people who could be privileged, um, uh, you know, and 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 exempt themselves from good behavior and working in the context of an ecosystem of forces in coalition with um, other interest groups. And um, in respect of history and in respect of their own power, are you know mm-hmm. are working together with people of other backgrounds. That would be like the next pitch we have to make is yeah. look, this is a weird thing. People working together, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Let's sell this new idea of working together to improve the lives of our communities. Um, so I see it as a challenge for. Um, not to get hung up on, uh, you know, white kids get all the fun jujubes, although that's an easy um, place for resentment to to catch in terms of, mm-hmm. like, if the dirt is sliding across the floor, that's an easy reel for it to catch on. Um, mm-hmm. And instead to take responsibility within our movement to educate our young people to um, move in ways appropriate to long-term success. So I feel absolutely. Like yeah, you're absolutely. Doing that. I mean, I think that kind of alliance building is really 
uh, crucial, and I think it's a really important, um, you know, maneuver. I think it's, and it's, again, I think it's important to sort of underscore that, that it's not, that this hasn't been done kind of maliciously, and it's often only in um, you know retrospect that we realize the the how things could have been done better. And so, in in recognizing ways to improve, that's you know then that puts the onus of responsibility on ourselves to actually make those changes and to to reach out and and make those connections and establish those types of contacts. Well, with, uh, a cup, so alliance. and you know, and I think this is echoed in the conservation movement um, mm-hmm. with you know second and third wave conservationists. Artino, Absolutely, yeah. With like the, um, basically the the recognition of like the environmental justice movement, those issues weren't around and, or recognized in mainstream sort of environmental discourse in the '60s. But you know now they they are in in, in a much in, in much more of a way, and 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 they have resonated precisely because of alliance building. So that you know the power and wealth of white environmental groups was able to connect and articulate with um, the on-the-ground actions of, of, you know, environmental justice movements of color that didn't have the same um, economic power, basically, to have their voice heard. Well, and I, and so then moving into the kind of how and the, how and the wherefore, I mean, there's two different little threads that are coming loose from my sweater right now. One of them (laughs) is around technology, and a lot of your work has been about mapping, um, mapping the potential for urban and peri-urban agriculture and trying to evaluate the territory um, using this incredible tool that we now have. Um, Can you talk a little bit about how um, mapping technologies... Well, so that was one thread. And the the other thread was how the next set of tools, it seems to me, as we, you know, are growing the awareness and literacy within the urban farming community about these structural empowerment issues um, are tools of finance and new economic tools to make um, access for capitalization a more democratic process and a more Mm -hmm. um, kind of community accessible process than this um, everything goes to the winner model that seems to predominate. In right. our in our in our economy in general, right. Well, I, I can't speak too much you want to, go to um, <laughs> I can't speak too much to the to the success. I mean, to to possibilities for uh, financing, other than you know, just saying I'm an unabashed uh, you know proponent of worker cooperatives. Uh, you know, just in, as a means of sort of sharing you know as a means of sharing the means of production and 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 and, and actually reducing some of those. Uh, Types of uh, you know initial startup costs in terms of where to actually access those funds. I'm not the person to talk to about that. Um, but you know, I think you know there are some you know models such as like community land trusts, you know, agricultural land trusts. Um, you know, particularly in conjunction with you know sort of um, uh, you know kind of worker type cooperatives. Uh, whether that's whether you know do, whether we're just specifically talking about production, are we talking about you know transformation and or or you know like the CSA model or whatever? Um, you know, I think I think that these diff- they're very different kind of models that 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 are obviously counter the sort of typical market dominant market lo- market logic. And I think whatever we can do to to promote those and to you know tell tell important stories and and, and identify case studies of of those successes is really important. When it comes to mapping, um, you know, I can speak a little bit more about that. Um, I think it's, you know, it's 
it's kind of a double-edged sword. On on one hand, I think it's really important to map um, potential, and it's really important kind of to identify, you know, what I – my first mapping project was, you know, identifying this vacant land in Oakland. We call it cultivating the commons because we were just looking at um, publicly owned land. And so identifying those spaces as commons and sort of trying to reclaim that notion of of the commons, you know, back from the the sort of days before, uh, you know, capitalist uh, enclosement of of the land. Um, So, you know, I think mapping a the commons even if it's a an unrealistic exercise even if you don't think that you know uh you know even if even even if we identified you know 1200 acres in Oakland and 800 of which were on you know land that wasn't too steep um obviously all 800 of those acres we would never really conceive of as being um uh farmed but i think it's important just to sort of think about like well you know what what is what are the limits of the possibilities and then you know we can sort of be more pragmatic about it as well you know so then you know in in the study that that came out later where we sort of crunched some numbers we said okay well what would it look like if 500 of these acres were were trans- transferred as uh, into production or what about 100 of these acres um and so you know i think it's an important first step to kind of map that that potential you know vision it's it's just kind of like a visioning process so i think there's a lot of um really important um work that comes out of that visioning process um and you know i think it's also a way that researchers um who have uh, or or you know tech tech geeks or whatever and it's not that hard to do it's not that hard to learn and then there's increasingly there are uh freeware gis programs like qgis quantum gis um you know that you can teach yourself that you can download for free um but uh, you know, I, I think it's a way that people who have time and kind of techno interests can contribute to to a local movement. So now, you know, when I did that study, there was, I think, only three others. There was Portland, Seattle, and Vancouver. They'd done that. But, you know, now there's 20, 30 different, 40 different cities have done land inventories. And so I think it's a really kind of important first step. Um, the flip side, I said it was a double-edged sword, because I think the flip side is that, um Mapping has always had a uh, colonial, I mean, to go back to this kind of concept of colonialism, there's always been a colonialist aspect to mapping. I mean, the first cartographers and geographers were really stewards of empire, right? They were empire builders, and they were trying to, like, put, you know, name things. They were, they were trying to, to create legible subjects. That, they were that, conquistadors. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, trying to to locate places and put them on a map so that those places could be claimed and exploited. Um, And so there's always that danger. So I think, you know, who's doing the mapping to what ends is always really important. But then ultimately, here's where it, here's where the the double-edged sword lies is who who ultimately profits from the knowledge you know i got a bunch of calls after that first thing came out from these kind of entrepreneurial types uh who probably didn't have too much interest vested interest in oakland or the people of oakland but were really just kind of looking for for cheap land and i really actually you know i i sort of did a double take and i i sort of second i actually went back and added some much stronger language in the intro and the conclusion and sort of reissued the the report because I, I wanted to make it very clear the importance of, you know, kind of doing this in a, in a participatory way that really involves, you know, community benefits and, and, and rather than stewarding land grabs, you know. Um, so that was, that's the, that's the, that's the, the, the negative side of the, 
of the double edge that I think people have to keep in mind when they think about mapping is who's using the data and the information. We had a similar situation here in the Adirondack Park where um, the new NRCS guy was like, oh, I can use these cool GIS tools to map the best farmland in the county and co-associate it with the owner list. And lo and behold, three months later, all of the best land was ripped out of grass and turned into um, GMO corn for dairy cows by the largest landowner who had just at that moment also was uh, realizing and recognizing that the price of corn uh, and the price of the cheap farmland um, and the profit potential, and boom, the information was right at their fingertips. Yeah. To, um, without having to wade through the kind of protective complexity of landowner negotiations and da 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 Yeah, exactly. I mean, I made a... I, I, um we also went through and, and calculated sort of potential for on, on private land as well. You know, located about 400 you know underutilized acres. Um, but I was yeah very explicit. Even though that data is out there as to who the landowner is, et cetera. You know, I, I didn't. There was sort of like uh, I, I actually didn't know the kind of le- the legal the different layers of, of legality of privacy. And so for me, it was really important to make sure that that remained. You know, I didn't want to have any linkages to landowner and privacy information, et cetera. Um, well, it's, to, it's to very interesting. Keep those, in keep those obstacles in the way. <laughs> no, well, so two different little mapping agriculture tidbits for your for your hopper there. Um, number one is in France, the um, cadastre, which lists landownership, they don't have, as we have in the U.S., a map, um, a public map of soil quality hmm. um, for the very reason that landowners don't want the quality of their land to be publicly known. Hmm. Um, another another interesting thing is that as Monsanto is now announcing its plans to partner, quote-unquote partner with farmers in gathering data about every square inch of their soil, productive capacity, dissolved nitrogen, yield potential, compaction, dot, 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 you know, down to a very small granular um, uh, on a very small uh, or high level of detail based on um, data collected by the equipment itself as it goes through the field, harvesting and planting. Um, the Farm Bureau has come out against it saying, um, you know, you're giving you're giving these mega corporations the tools to game the system in their favor, mm-hmm. and let's not do that. Yeah. Um, so it's a very, very hot and interesting discourse. You know, open. we all like open source, but, you know, you don't want to open your home up. Being yeah, it's like the, it's invaded. like the uh, you know it's the it's like the NSA thing, right? It's 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 the era of big data, you know, and we can collect it now with the with the with the existing technologies. But ultimately, you know, who who controls the data, how it's used, um, is is a really important question. I mean, you know, I'm in this urban studies and planning school now, and and there's a big debate um, within urban studies and in planning as well. You know, there's there's a bunch of sort of tech jockeys who really think that we can model the city with all this data, you know, cell phone data and, um, you know, uh, transit fare data, you know, from New York subway systems and who's going where when. So we have all this data. But then, you know, 
the sort of next step in, 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 in the way people are thinking about it is that, well, we can just, like, run these regression analyses, et cetera, and figure out and, and, and essentially model the city, right? And so it's using the data to then produce a model of what one thinks it should look like. And, and that's, I think, really where, you know, the dan- a lot, some of the danger lies as well is, you know, is, is, is trying to sort of project, extrapolate what some ideal looks like just based on this type of data. So, so GIS and mapping always runs that, you know, you always run that risk. And so, you know, people who use GIS critically, you know, very much discuss the kind of implications of power uh, and, and how these things are used and, and, and who's, and, and, you know, for who. Well, and I what. think, I mean, as a bottom line, you know, ultimately our audience here is for new agrarians, uh, is of new agrarians and people who are interested and engaged with the future and, and contributing to that future in a positive and meaningful way to provide a basic human need, which is food, mm-hmm. and to engage in basic human processes, which are agriculture and community engagement. So it seems like the the tools to do that um, vary yeah. um, uh, in their usage and in their potential, um, but that, that uh, we don't have to panic and we don't have to, you know, start treating the city as an operating system or each other as avatars only or just, right. you know, um, getting too, like, freaked out. We can just acknowledge that um, sometimes, sometimes, well, okay, maybe I should let you finish that. We can acknowledge that these technologies are enabling but are also, uh, they also distort our, our understanding of how things really work in the real world. Is that a fair yeah, I mean, we, you know, we, we, it's it's sort of you you lose, um, you know, it's sort of the risk of losing quantitative, uh, uh, rather of losing kind of qualitative uh, measurements of of the way of of social relationships. You know, the moment that you start trying to measure social relationships uh, using numbers, it, things you know things start to you start to have problems, right? You know, it's like we can measure we can measure, uh, you know, rates of mineralization of organic nitrogen and sort of optimize uh, rates of compost application, um, you know, but what does that mean when we're talking about, you know, the, the, you know, where you're getting the compost from in relation to who's producing it, who's providing it, who's shipping it, you know, like who's going to actually uh, flip the bill, whose labor is involved, you know, Maybe the, maybe the compost thing is running out. <laughs> maybe I'm I'm going down the wrong track with that example. But you know, you get my point that no. You know, well, we if can you're sort of using measure, if measure you're these using biophysical dairy... aspects, we can measure these biophysical aspects. But then to sort of extrapolate from these biophysical quantitative aspects to try to then make decisions that are very much deeply deeply embedded in social relationships. That's when the problem that's when we have to be really careful and that's when we have to really study things and speak to people and you know that's when all the qualitative research really comes in and and, and the interviews and talking to people and understanding those relationships and those power structures yeah you know lately i've been just feeling like my favorite innovation is tradition mm-hmm. um i this is exciting. Let's talk about this more because we have no more time whatsoever. This is another episode of Greenhorn's uh, Radio, which should go on for an hour, but only had half an hour. I I thank you, um, Nathan, for being here. And, and would you be open to, to taking this up some more? Sure. Yeah, we'll do it another. I, sorry, I have to run. I got I've got my class in a little bit, so I couldn't stay much longer today. But um, yeah, we'll we'll pick it up again another time.
All righty. Thank you, everybody, for listening. See Thanks. Talk Take to you care. Next week. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.